Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watched Annie. A spunky young orphan is taken in by a rich eccentric, much to the chagrin of the cantankerous woman who runs the orphanage. Oh, it's musical time again today. This movie's weird. This movie is very weird, but... I, like, this movie is such a staple of my childhood. Like, they play this on television all the time, and I know I rented it several times. I, David, how have you not seen this? But because it's a dumb musical. <gasps> Why would I ever watch this? What about the plot of this story would make you think that I need to see this movie? It's a girl goes on an adventure. And mm. Carol Burnett. <laughs> Well, now there is that. Yes. I don't know. I did enjoy watching this movie, Mm -hmm. but it seems like at every single moment, they wanted to confound me with another decision. (laughs) I don't think that's unfair. This (laughs) this film is, I don't want to say bizarre, but it's very disjointed. They're just going an awful lot of different directions. And right when you think you finally like, cool, I'm getting in the groove of this movie. It takes another left turn. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What sets this apart from the other musicals we've watched, and one Mm -hmm. of the reasons why I don't know that it'd be as high on my list, not to say that it's bad, Mm -hmm. but it's not as good as some of the other ones we've seen, is because there's no consistency of style. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, I think think we're going to get into that as we kind of go through this story of Annie. Okay. A little bit. So uh, it had an estimated budget of about $50 million. It grossed $57 million. Ooh. It was the 10th highest grossing film of 1982, but it didn't make a profit because of its exorbitant production costs. <laughs> There's so much pumped into this mm-hmm. movie. <laughs> like when, you're, when your movie costs that much, Especially in 1982 dollars, mm-hmm. you already go, well... <laughs> yep. Again, we watched a submarine movie where they recreated an entire submarine set, and it cost 40% of what this movie costs. Yeah, I mean, if you look at like the sets and the spectacle that they do when they go in on it, it's huge. Also, they have a huge supporting cast. Those kids aren't cheap. No. I mean, the the kids aren't cheap. The guest stars aren't cheap. All of the actors are Are high-level actors. Pretty high quality. Well, this is the second of six film and television versions of The Little Orphan Annie musical fable. The others are The Annie Christmas Show from 1977, Annie, A Royal Adventure from 1995, The Wonderful World of Disney, Annie, in 1999, Annie, in 2014, and Annie Live from 2021. So this is one they like to do. If you've been involved in musical theater, especially children's musical theater, this one has come around your block. Except this is not a children's story. Well, this particular one, there is an Annie Jr., but it's just one that because it has a lot of children and a lot of girls, which is usually in high supply in a musical theater group, it's one they do. And and valid and totally fair, but like... I shouldn't be surprised at how like bold in they went with it, but still you watch it and go like, wow, you're really going to go there, aren't you? Mm-hmm. You're really just going to go straight in for the jugular on this topic. Yeah. Well, this movie also took two years to produce and had over 1900 production personnel. So that also attributes to the budget. Oh my God. Yep. <laughs> yep. That's so many resources for this story is not that big, right? Yep. It also broke a record for the screen rights for the stage show. It sold for $9.5 million in 78, which is about $40 million in today's money. So it broke the record that Warner Brothers set when they paid $5.5 million for My Fair Lady in 64, and Paramount Pictures made Popeye to make up for being outbid. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. And then if you know anything about Popeye, it's a historical film failure. Sure. And it's just, it's a fascinating film to watch just in and of itself. <laughs> yeah. So a little bit more about the rights. David Begelman, who brought the stage show to Columbia Pictures' attention, was originally intended to produce this movie. But after Begelman forged Cliff Robertson's signature on a check, the creators of the stage show refused to sell the rights to the studio if Begelman was producer. Ray Stark took the job, even though he didn't like the original Broadway show. Now, I bring that up in part because that is a very important thing that we have figured out about movie musicals. When they're not great, usually we can point to somebody in production who doesn't love the original. Oh, yep. Why does Hollywood think they can fix a Broadway show? They always do this. Uh, this is the film versus stage fight. Stage actors can be very snobbish. Like, well, we're way better than film. And then film people tend to get snobby back. Fuck you. We're better than you. We can get it right. Um, so it's just that rivalry that goes back and forth. We don't have it quite as much now. We get it more between the TV versus film because TV is kicking film's ass right now. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's a cycle. It's a cycle. Well, I mean, you know what? I, I, I remembered that name and I know why. Is mm -hmm. that Ray Stark has led us astray before because he really wanted to make Funny Lady. So yeah, he pushed Funny Lady after Funny Girl. He pushed his luck on that one. Yeah. And so your feelings about this film are not... Uh, you are not in the minority. Ray Stark said of this movie, this is the film I want on my tombstone. In his negative review of the movie, Time Magazine's Richard Corliss wrote, funeral services are being held at the theater near you. Oh, wow. Yep. Okay. I don't feel that bad about it. Yeesh. Yeah. I, I had vaguely heard of a reputation for this mm -hmm. movie. It's really not a bad movie. It's it's not. It's just such a bizarre way to tell this story. <laughs> the conceit is very it doesn't hold up to today at all. The thought that a millionaire, a billionaire, because they make it very clear, oh, the billionaire, um, would invite a child without a home to come hang out at their mansion for a week just for fun to make them look good. Like, imagine if Jeff Bezos did that. Well, yeah. Okay, but I think it does. Like, it held up for me. That part of the premise really did. You really have to remind yourself, 1933. This is something that a fucking weird oil tycoon in the 20s and 30s sure. would do. That they absolutely would do this type of stuff. Mm -hmm. It's very much a Henry Higgins thing for him. Sure. And so I think it still, like, as a premise, works really well. It doesn't work if you modernize it at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because, yeah, our billionaire society, we're, we're now in late stage capitalism. They don't give a shit about humanity. <laughs> but at this time, you still had these guys who were turning wealth into what they considered nobility mm -hmm. and might be struck with this premise. Yeah. So, like, I, that part of the story doesn't bother me. It's, it's, it's the weird turns and stylistic decisions. And you're going to be surprised at the end of this because I'm not going to give this movie that bad a rating. Mm -hmm. I'm just confused about it. <laughs> sure. It's a little all over the place. And I think that's to do with the adaptation from the comic book to the musical to the movie. And so we have quite a few people to talk about when it comes to writing. We're going to start with Harold Gray, who's responsible for the comic strip. The comic stripping Little Orphan Annie, who originally ran in the Chicago Tribune. Uh, she was intended to be a boy, Little Orphan Otto. But the gender was swapped at the request of Gray's editor because they thought it would also be great to reference James Whitcomb Riley's poem, Little Orphan Annie. Mm -hmm. So, okay, great. He also liked that it had fantasy and folklore elements that was also based on the Mary Alice Smith, an orphan Riley knew whose nickname was Allie. So there's like a lot of orphan things and actually the orphant which is a typo stuck because it made the poem more famous and it's also the inspiration for raggedy ann and andy as well as annie mm. so yeah we weird depression era stuff weird depression era stuff then we also have 
Martin Sharnin, who's responsible for the play. Um, the stage version is probably his biggest known work, though he's worked in theater and on Broadway for a long time. Then we have Thomas Meehan, who is also responsible for the book, the musical. Before this, he did That Was the Week That Was on television, Broadway musicals of Annie. And then after this, he wrote the musicals The Producers, Hairspray, Young Frankenstein, The Spaceballs, and has Tony Awards in the 90s and the early 2000s. He's he's done some shit. He teamed up with uh, our boy Mel. Mel Brooks. Then we have Charles Strauss, who did the music before this. He did Bye Bye Birdie, Bonnie and Clyde, The Night They Raided Minsky's Applause. There was a crooked man. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. He also wrote the theme song for All in the Family. And after this, he did All Dogs Go to Heaven, which is a great movie and also sad and about an orphan. (laughs) All the music here is very, very good. Oh, it's fabulous. Carol Sobieski is responsible for the screenplay. Before this, she did Peyton's Place and then a lot of TV movies. After this, she did The Toy, Sylvester, Sarah Plain and Tall, the 1991 TV movie starring Glenn Close and Christopher Walken. If you haven't seen it, you should see it because it's amazing. Fried Green Tomatoes and Money for Nothing. So we have a lot of people involved in like the shaping of this. Sort of. To me, where you get the disjointed is that everybody up at the beginning of this mm-hmm. translated it to Broadway. Sure. Charnin, Meehan, and Strauss all had this vision for it on Broadway. Mm-hmm. And honestly, the way this is constructed makes a lot of sense for Broadway. Sure. It's not a hard musical to build on a stage. You can you can move back and forth relatively easily and not need to change sets, or you could make it really elaborate if you wanted to. It's the Carol Sobieski of it all mm-hmm. that makes me wonder. We got somebody who's a soap opera writer. Yeah. To do this really rambunctious, mischievous musical. A little bit, yeah. That's also centered around kids. Mm-hmm. I just don't know. But you can definitely see the drama in Miss Hannigan. But I do think the thing about soap operas is, is it's very high drama, and you just have to suspend your disbelief to be able to enjoy them. And that's true here, too, because it's also supposed to be an escape. And that's what this film is about. It's a little girl escaping her reality for a little bit. Yeah. And and I should mention that Peyton Place was one of the very first primetime soaps. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit of a different animal. Sure. Than what we would know is something like The Young and the Restless. They, they were they were doing it on a much bigger scale opposite Dallas. But there's something, there's some disconnect there. There's some disconnect between what the stage version of this was. Sure. And then how they decided to put it on screen. You know, I I think maybe the most jarring moment in the whole movie is that we get to the end of this movie. Mm -hmm. And this whole time, it's been a pretty just wild, mischief-filled thing, right? Mm -hmm. With a lot of, like, oof, hits you right in the heart moments. Mm Mm-hmm. And then we have this prolonged action sequence. Yep. This creepy chase of a man who's going to kill Annie. Yep. Night of the Hunter style. Yes. And you're going like, whoa, whoa, whoa. When did we decide to do this? Oh, just like we're also going to have a whole stage show at the movies. Before the movie. And then we're going to show a good chunk of the movie. Yep. There's some choices. I can't blame that all on the writing really Mm -hmm. it does then give you pause to think did y'all write it this way was this how it was actually structured when we started filming it so i'm i want to bring up some of the different some of the things about the comic and also the play so the only characters in this movie that were in the little orphan annie strip were annie daddy warbucks sandy punjab and the asp the last two were not in the play because when Martin Sharnin began work on the musical, the characters were cut because he didn't want any fantasy or magic. They're reinstated for those elements here. Oh, okay. The comic strip strongly opposed Franklin Roosevelt. So yeah. Interesting. That's a big departure. In the comic, Daddy Warbucks made his fortune through the sale of weapons and ammunition during World War I. And he started as a guest character, but he was so popular that Harold Gray brought him back as a regular. Oh, what a... That explains his name so perfectly. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Oliver Daddy Warbucks. 
books. That is good comic writing. In the play, Miss Agatha Hannigan is a derivation of Miss Asthma. And the songs Dumb Dog, Sandy, Let's Go to the Movies, We Got Annie, and Sign were written expressly for the movie. The songs from the original play that were dropped were New York City, We'd Like to Thank You, Herbert Hoover, and We Won't Be an Orphan for Long, Annie, and A New Deal for Christmas. The last four songs are not in the movie or the television adaptations. They're just, they don't seem to fit. That's why. Hmm. One of the other things about this production is the musical ends at Christmas. So that's where, you know, A New Deal for Christmas comes into play. Well, well, fair. This production moved it to the 4th of July because of the cost that would have been involved to bring in fake snow. Yeah. Which, fair. I'm not mad about that. When it's already spiraling out of control at this point, Mm -hmm. see if you could save some of that money somewhere. In the comic strip, Miss Hannigan, or Miss Asthma, would send out the girls from the orphanage to do work assignments in the community, which is how Annie met daddy warbucks in the play she met him because she bumps into grace farrell as she's getting yelled at for running away and miss farrell comes to the orphanage to choose a girl to do the special pr event so that's how that works in the play that's better that explains why that's a better happenstance i think in the play uh grace farrell brought the adoption papers to the orphanage after the movie script had oliver do it or daddy warbucks Carol Burnett and Albert Finney lobbied the songwriters for a song for them to sing together to flesh out the only meeting between the two of them. And so their duet sign was written in two days. I mean, it's a fucking great song. It's a great song. They do it well. So, like, that makes sense to me. I'm happy on that one. Yeah. But I. You spend your evenings in the shanties. You had me follow. Imbibing quarts of bathtub gin. Bronchitis. And here you're dancing in your scanties. Great gams. With some old geezer called Little Caesar. An uncle. You lock the orphans in the closet. They love it. You huck their Christmas souvenirs. Drink. You steal the funds you should deposit. It's fresh. You make them grovel while you buy lavaliers. That's a lot of changes. Oh, there's another. There's, I've got one more. The song We Got Annie was included in an early draft of the stage musical, but it was dropped before it ever reached the stage. We Got Annie was meant to be sung by downtrodden customers at a local coffee shop where Annie worked cleaning tables. Oh, man. Yeah. I love that. I do, too. I hate that it's not like a part of this story, but I do like that they brought old songs that were originally made for this story into the movie musical. I do like that. That does show respect for the lineage of the story, even if the main producer is not super excited. Well, this is this is not a case of him like, well, I'm going to fix it. This is a case of him going, well, somebody's got to take this because it's too big a project to mm-hmm. fail. I don't love it, but I'm going to do right by it and we're going to make it. Ultimately, the story for the musical is an original one. Nothing from the original comic strip was used in the musical. And the story written for the musical caused confusion about Annie's origins in the original comic strip. The storybooks that came out at the time of the movie's premiere were all sequels to the plot of this movie. Oh, fun. So we just have like this hodgepodge of stuff when it comes to the writing. I don't want to say the writing's bad because... The dialogue is good. It's all like the scenes themselves are great, but there's not a very good through line. I don't think the problem with this movie is the writing. I think the writing's solid. Other than I, I we could we could get rid of Punjab. Like, let's be clear. Yeah, there, there are multiple issues with the character of Punjab. I um, yeah. But like, there's there's some things that we could we could totally get rid of. But like, as a story, I don't hate it. Although how we go about putting those pieces together and where they all fall, that's mm-hmm. probably the part to me that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, I'm like all of the elements are correct here, but they're all in the wrong order. I don't disagree about that, but there the story doesn't hold up to scrutiny. It really doesn't. The concept, rich guy has a poor kid come live with him for a little bit. Okay. 
but it, it yeah it doesn't follow through completely so let's talk about our directing hey our director is someone you may have heard of it's john houston uh he's making another appearance from our 75 oscars directing the man who would be king and he was also one of the directors on the very horrible 1967 Casino Royale. However, he directed the part of the movie that we did enjoy. He did direct the one part we liked. Um, he's also known for directing the Maltese Falcon, the African Queen, and the Treasure of the Sierra Madre. So, dude's a high caliber director. <laughs> like, David literally wrote a note here. So, what's he doing here? Yeah. <laughs> Which, totally fair. He was considered an outsider. And according to Carol Sobieski, our screenplay writer, Ray Stark loved that kind of high risk situation. He thought this was funny. I'm going to put it this way. I don't hate what John Huston is doing mm-hmm. here. I am baffled at times. Yep. John Huston was an outsider, though. Sure. I mean, even when he was working within the studio system, we talked about this with the man who would be king. He was the original renegade director sure and in 82 what what's the last bastion for this renegade he's already had this illustrious career i know let's put him on a kid's musical sure (laughs) you do have to admit the the movie looks good oh it's it's stunningly gorgeous it Mm. looks as good as anything else he's done Mm. it really comes down to again you're right that the structure doesn't follow through, although for me, you know, the, the order of things doesn't make a lot of sense. And then if that order and structure doesn't quite match up, John Houston was going to go all out in every aspect of the scene he's doing. Mm-hmm. So when you've got things that are disjointed, you can maybe smooth them over sometimes if mm-hmm. you're like, well, OK, we're going to tone that part down here and bring it up here. And John Houston went, uh-uh, everything to 11. So according to assistant director Jerry Zeismer, Houston lost interest in directing the film and often showed up to the set drunk and fell asleep in his chair. That sounds like John Houston. Yep. This left the crew to basically make the movie around him with Zeismer calling all the shots. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but we do have a who could have been better. Oh boy. Okay. Randall Kleiser was considered as a director for this film after the commercial success of Greece in 1978. Oh. oh. But he had to back out because of post-production issues with the Blue Lagoon. <laughs> what, what were we doing in the 80s? A lot of blow. A lot of blow. <laughs> oh, my God. Look, I actually like what's going on here. Sure. Here's what I will say to their credit. While the choices are inconsistent, what is consistent is they have gone the extra mile in every fucking scene of the movie. Mm-hmm. So the energy is consistent the whole way through the movie. Sure. Like the reason you can ride along with this movie really well, even though it's a bit of a hot mess, is that it's still a thousand percent in every moment. All the actors are fully committed. Mm hmm. All the scenes are incredibly lavish and like pushed all the way out and they've just gone for broke. So there's never a scene in the movie that doesn't feel like they went 10 times further than they needed to. And that works in its favor. It's just weird. (laughs) Oh, it's very weird. I just think, yeah, the directing doesn't suit the story, even though like the direction is very good. This movie is just very much, it feels like a hodgepodge. (laughs) It does. It just, in a weird way, it worked for me. That's cool. And I guess like, maybe that's a lot more to do with the actors, Mm -hmm. but like somehow they managed to pull it together in a way that I went, well, it's weird, but at least it feels coherent. There are weird movies and disjointed movies like that where you clearly tell Mm-hmm. something's off or you know somebody took over midway through and you can tell it's different yeah and in this one i didn't really feel that at all i would have never guessed that somebody was like halfway in halfway out just because everything felt at the same energy the whole time mm. well let's move on to our cast something that i think we can both agree is quite great oh man <laughs> we start 
with Albert Finney as Oliver Daddy Warbucks. Before this, he was in The Entertainer, Tom Jones, Two for the Road, Scrooge, Gumshoe, Murder on the Orient Express, 1974, The Duelist, Shoot the Moon. After this, he was in Miller's Crossing, Breakfast of Champions, Aaron Brockovich, Traffic, Big Fish, Ocean's 12, A Good Year, Amazing Grace, The Bourne Ultimatum, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, The Bourne Legacy, and Skyfall. What do we think of Albert Finney? What a man. What an amazing actor. He's adorable. He instantly know who that guy is. And this character and his portrayal of this character has become such an archetype. He does it so well, though. Like yeah. he does it. He does it with a charm mm-hmm. and a thoughtfulness. Yes, that so many of those archetypes don't get. Sure. Again, that's the brilliance of Albert Finney. He's able to take huge characters, giant broad characters, and then layer in subtlety right under there, mm-hmm. so that you get a full picture of that. Yeah. This movie doesn't work unless he does that. Because in the weirdest way, he's one of the biggest characters in the movie, and he also grounds it Mm -hmm. at the same time. I don't know how you do that other than you're Albert fucking Finney. Albert Finney is doing a voice impression of director John Huston. Yes! (laughs) That totally makes sense. I mean, if you've ever heard John Huston talk, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's that's this man. I have two who could have been better. Nobody. mm -mm. No, I I don't want to hear it. He's too good. But you need to hear these names. Do I? Yes, you do. Sean Connery was Houston's first choice for Warbucks. And according to the Daily Express, he was even taking singing lessons for the part. Okay. Jack Nicholson signed on to play Warbucks, but dropped out after the original producer left. I don't like either of them as much as I like Albert Finney. Sean Connery is going to be Scottish because you really can't do an accent. Which is fine. I don't have a problem with that. He can be Scottish. He would have been too buttoned up. Jack would have been too much of an asshole to the kid. Oh, Albert. No, no, but no, no, no. He would have. Albert Finney can play that indifference to the child without being dismissive to the child. When you say Jack would have been an asshole, you mean on screen. Sure. Yes. Okay. I'm not like, talking about um. No, because he, the child from The Shining, loved him. So yeah. I was I was about to say I was like, look, Jack Nicholson's a lot of things, but he's cool with kids. Yeah, he's not a jackass to children unless they <laughs> unless they burned it. I don't know. No, I meant the character. His performance would have been too much of a jackass. Yeah, it would have been too sarcastic and standoffish. Yeah, Albert Finney, love it. I'm here for it. He shaved his head. Of course, to play Warbucks, it's a big mm-hmm. thing they always talk about when any actor takes on this role. But Eileen Quinn, who plays Annie, didn't recognize him at the movie's premiere because his hair had grown back. Oh, no. That's cute. I love that. Next, we have Carol Burnett as Miss Hannigan. You know who she is. She's been all over television forever. She was in Once Upon a Mattress, Carol Burnett show, The Front Page, Noises Off, Horton Hears a Who, The Secret World of Arity. Toy Story 4 and All Together Now. What do we think of Carol Burnett? Do we really even need to say it? She is the shit. Holy crap. Yeah. The woman can do anything. <laughs> she she truly can. I know I have imitated poorly her version of Little Girls so many times. And there are certain phrases that she says in this film that I'm just like, I love you so much. <laughs> I I also really needed her to play the Wicked Witch of the West because her voice is just, it screeches and howls in just the best way without her raising her voice at all. (laughs) I love her so much. Oh, she she nails drunk so well, but in a comedic way. Yeah. And also that woman is horny as hell. Yeah, that's the other real fun part is watching Carol Burnett be saucy. Like, that woman needs to bone. It is amazing. I love it. Carol Burnett could be a little blue. Not sure. She was always on family TV. So it was never going to go crazy. Just the occasional innuendo and a look to camera. Oh, she was all about that. And then in this, she gets to be like, Oh, okay. I get to I get to pull the bumpers off here. Let's go. Mm-hmm. 
in the Broadway stage version, Dorothy Ludon played Miss Hannigan, and the cast soon discovered that Ludon hated children and dogs. Oh, God. Carol Burnett loved the kids and had a great relationship with the girls in the cast. Yay! Very, very nice. I mean, you would have to, right? We have to. I do have one who could have been better. Again, no one. Why are we doing this? Because it, we have to think, we have to consider. We have to, we have to consider. Bet Midler was offered the role, but declined. Good. She could have been fun. Bet Midler can't do this. I think she could. I love Bet Midler, but not what Carol Burnett's doing here. Oh, uh, you know, I'm I'm forgetting when we made this in 1982. Bet Midler couldn't do this. No. <laughs> I mean, let's be clear. Bet Midler can transform if she really into whatever. She can do wonderful things, but at this point in her career, she could not do this. But also, it's the it's the comedy of it. Bette Midler's great, and Bette Midler is very, very good at comedy, but she does not have that killer instinct that Carol Burnett does when it comes to comedic timing. She just does not. That's not Bette Midler's forte. <laughs> sure. Next, we have Anne ranking as Grace Farrell. She's a renowned dancer. Like, she's a dancer lady. Before this, she was in movie, movie, and all that jazz. And after this, she was in Mickey and Maude. Her biggest claim to fame is that she replaced Gwen Verdon as Roxy Hart in the original Chicago. And then she also choreographed the 1997 revival. She is Fosse's protege and was his partner romantically when Fosse and Verdon separated. So her whole thing is that she promotes his style of dancing. Like to this day, that's what she does, um, which I love that we get to see her perform. Yeah. Like we get to see her dance in a couple different ways. And she is, I mean, with the exception of Annie, she's the female lead in this show. As much as you have to instantly love Annie, you also have to instantly love Miss Farrell. Yeah. Part of this is that she's got just powerhouse actors around her sure including eileen quinn <laughs> sure she is a little overpowered compared to them acting wise sure she's affable and you immediately sense all the good in her and all the good she wants to do mm -hmm. but she's not as pure and act like just as purely amazing an actor as everybody else and so she's on occasion just kind of sidelined a bit by the other people on screen sure that being said the second she starts dancing holy shit yeah you can't take your eyes off of her no she she's so interesting to watch she fits fine eventually everybody else is so good that you start doing one of these is not like the other <laughs> i mean i think she's she's a lovely addition to this cast i adore her i think she's fabulous next we have Tim Curry as Rooster. You know who the fuck Tim Curry is. Fucking Tim Curry. I refuse to read his credits. No, not going to happen. You, you know him. You love him. You're oddly attracted to him. What do we think of Tim Curry? Why is there not more of him? I feel like the misstep with Rooster in this film is that I feel like we should have had a situation where he got a job at the Warbucks mansion. Yes. And he's part of, like, he creates hijinks and issues and, like, is going to keep Annie from endearing herself to Warbucks. Like, that's part of the plan. I don't, I, I don't know. And the, But, like, Rooster just wants to be there to try to steal as much as he can while he's there. But he's also going to pro cause problems for Annie. It would have been a perfect opportunity for that. I would have liked more of those types of hijinks. There is not enough Rooster. There's not. And Lily in this movie. They come in for two scenes. I mean, they they have quite the impact in those scenes, so I'm not mad about that. Tim Curry said he based his performance of Rooster on a stagehand he knew while performing a play in New York City. Sounds about right. And I have two who could have been betters. <laughs> and let me tell you, they are good. It better be. Reportedly, Mick Jagger really wanted to play Rooster. And this would have been the second role that Jagger lost to Tim Curry, the previous one being Dr. Frankenfurter in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Whoa, hold on. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Mick would have been amazing. 
as Frankenfurter. He he could have done it. I I'm not gonna sacrifice Tim Curry, but he could have done it. Oh my god, that should have happened at some point. Jeez. Here's the thing: Mick Jagger still could do it. Oh sure, pushing eighty still could do it. Yeah, Tim Curry has. I believe he had a stroke. He has not been well over the last decade. Mm. So. He would I think he's still it. doing voice work though, which is he, awesome. he I believe he is. Yes. He made an appearance not too long ago. That's for, good. for I think for some anniversary. Our other who could have been better is Steve Martin. Oh man, 82 Steve Martin. Oh, that's like the height of his powers. Put a mustache on him. He was offered the role and he turned it down when he heard he would be working alongside Bernadette Peters. They were in the process of breaking up, and he felt it would be too painful to work with her for several months. Oh yeah, no. Everyone forgets that they dated. That wouldn't have that that would have been rough. I get it. That was a self preservation, which is one hundred percent the right choice to make. They've both been fine. <laughs> but just the eye candy alone there. I know. Steve Martin. Steve Martin in a '30s suit and a mustache. Steve Martin now. It would happen. I know. <laughs> I fucking I know. love me some Steve Martin. Next, we have Bernadette Peters as Lily. Okay, I'm not reading her fucking stuff either. <laughs> if you've listened to a musical, she's in it. That's just a fact. The end. <laughs> you fucking know who Bernadette Peters is. What do we think about her? <laughs> Even less of her than should be there. Like, all my complaints about Tim Curry are about doubled for putting somebody like Bernadette Peters so little into this movie. Well, that's the other thing is she could have also been working at the mansion, but I also would have liked just more interaction between her and Mrs. Hannigan. Yes. Because they obviously don't like each other. The one's got the other's number, which is fun. It's great. And those two together, just all three of them together, perfection. That one scene where they're all singing together is just, it's like, yes, more of this, please. I want a whole movie of this. There were so many opportunities between that point and then like another 40 minutes before the finale Mm -hmm. where we could have had them going about hatching the plot. Yeah. Like there's so much time left without them. And I'm going, hey, when are they coming back? God damn it. They're too good of actors for you to leave them out of the movie for that long. Mm-hmm. Like, it's really noticeable if they're not there. They're just, they're just so good. God damn it. More, more of them. More. All right. Now we've come to Eileen Quinn as Annie. She hasn't done much else other than this. She did a few things off Broadway and also for animation, but she primarily does not work in film. Interesting. And in fact, I believe at one point she um, she's worked as a Spanish teacher. That's cool. She has a whole other life and that's good for her. But the search for Annie was a big deal. Oh, I bet. It spanned two years, 22 Jeez. cities, 8,000 interviews and 70 actresses. God. Nine girls made it to the second round. Yeah. Yeah. They did the hunt all across America and even London, and all were warned that some would be too old, some would be too young, too short, too tall, and that the girl chosen would have to be able to sing and dance expertly and be able to project as an actress and have tons of personality, which is great. Like They're like, you've got to be able to do this. I appreciate that up front, they're already going like, it has to be the whole package. <laughs> Absolutely. And especially, especially when you're casting an unknown. That's what you go for. Absolutely. So of the 70 girls that were asked to do a videotape audition, nine were invited to Hollywood over six days and worked on musical numbers and on scenes from the script. And at the end, they decided that all of them would have roles in the film, but that Eileen Quinn was taking the title role. So I do kind of like that the runner up still got to be in the movie. The final three candidates were Eileen Quinn, Robin Ignico. And Angela Lee Sloan. Sloan was told that she looked too much like Quinn to play the lead orphan at that point. So she was offered the smaller role and Sloan plays the sleeping orphan in A Hard Knock Life. So I do appreciate that. You know, you made it this far and you still get to be in the movie. You're just not going to be the lead. That's fair. You have to be like, if you look too much, we can't have you be sisters. (laughs) Sure. 
So what do we think of Eileen Quinn? Oh, shit. <laughs> God damn. Mm, that kid. She is the whole package. Yeah. That girl can act her ass off. She can sing like nobody's business. And, you know, you just want to give her a hug and a sandwich. <laughs> and a bath. Oh, yes. Everyone in this movie <laughs> needs a bath. The most fun part about the dog is that the dog's there and the dog's dirty. But it's not dirty in the way that, like, natural dog is dirty. It's mm -hmm. that you got a very nice, <laughs> cute dog, healthy puppy, and then had it roll around in mud for a while. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Eileen Quinn's just so fucking good. And again, this is where you have that comparison where you look at Anne Reinking, who's like, you're very charming, but you seem a little outclassed. And at no point is Eileen Quinn outclassed by no. four legendary actors. Oh, many. Yeah. Mythically great actors. Yeah. And she's just as good as them. She's just as good. And she's just super cute without being like model cute, like model kid cute. Yeah. Like, it's like, you're scrappy and we like you. Mm-hmm. Eileen Quinn's red curly wig was so itchy that the producers gave her a special comb for scratching her head. <laughs> and she actually had to dye her hair red because her natural brown hair was visible through said wig. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that makes sense. This is the only version of Annie in which she starts the show with curly hair. In all the other versions, her hair is straight at the beginning and she gets a perm for the Christmas scene at the closing. Oh, interesting. Which is also very interesting. Now, I'm not going to call these who could have been betters. We just have some very famous people who also went through these auditions. Okay. We have Drew Barrymore. Mm, yeah. Elizabeth Berkeley auditioned, but she was told she was too tall. Sounds about right. Mm -hmm. And Kristen Chenoweth. She was turned down because of her thick Southern accent. <laughs> she went on to play Lily St. Regis in the wonderful world of Disney, Annie, in 1999. Hi, I'm Kristen Chenoweth. I'm Kristen. <laughs> I'm Christy Chenoweth. Her real name is Christy. <laughs> that super, super high voice. She's Tinkerbell. Literally. Imagine that as a child. Oh, God. With a, thick, with a thick Oklahoma accent. No, I Eileen is the whole package for this. And like... It does make me wonder, it was like, well, do you maintain that level of acting or mm -hmm. was it just that in that moment in that package and it was the right chemistry with everybody too? Not saying that she's bad, but it's no. just like, was it, was it the mix of everybody and her and her charm that just makes it work so well? You know, you can see it when it's just her that she lights up and she's yeah. very captivating. So she can put, if she can pull focus... From Carol Burnett, Tim Curry, and Bernadette Peters, you're doing something right. Yeah. So, I mean, I get it. This is yeah. great. So now we move on to our ponds. Wow, there's a lot of our ponds. Yeah, random people of note. We have Jeffrey Holder as Punjab. He's a legendary dancer who was in Doctor Doolittle and Live and Let Die. <sighs> Why? Why did <sighs> we put this man in this many roles? <laughs> When he's just such an elegant, amazing dancer and could have been in anything else. I mean, you could have had him be like the house manager and, you know, then it, you could have gotten him to dance with Miss Farrell and that would have been great. <sighs> yeah. And this character is very flawed and we do not ignore that. We just hate the waste of Jeffrey Holder's talent. Clearly, there's a reason why he didn't do that much film. Sure. Next, we have Robin Ignico as Daffy. She's one of the final candidates for Annie, as we discussed before. Edward Herman as FDR. We know him. We talked about him a little bit in Big Business, and he's Richard Gilmore. Lois DeBonzi as Eleanor Roosevelt. She also played Immaculata in Sister Act. Peter Marshall as Bert Healy. He was the host of the Hollywood Squares in the original run. We have Larry Hankin as the Pound Man. He's Old Joe from Breaking Bad, Mr. Heckles from Friends, and Officer Balzac from Home Alone. He's one of the, he's a Tobolowski. You you know his face, but you don't always know his name. It's Larry Hankin. He's shown up as an Arpon in a bunch of our stuff too. He really has. Ray Bulger as the sound effects man at the radio station. 
would have never known. I knew, and I knew before I looked it up. This is the Scarecrow himself from The Wizard of Oz. If you don't know this about Diana, I know way too much shit about The Wizard of Oz. It's pretty awesome. It's very fun. Yeah, my kids like to quiz me. And last but not least, Meredith Salinger as one of the dancers' orphans. This is actually her film debut. You know her as the star of The Journey of Natty Gann and Dream a Little Dream. And she's now married to Patton Oswalt. And they have a podcast called Did You Get My Text? It's very cute. All right. Now we go on to awards. This film was nominated for two awards. Best Art Set Direction and Best Original Song Score-Adaptation. Yeah. Yep. Now we will not talk about who's winning yet, but I do need to talk about one award that this film did win, particularly Eileen Quinn. She won a Razzie. Oh, no. I know. It's sad, but also kind of hilarious because she's the fucking shit. The Razzies can be cruel because sometimes the Razzies are so well earned. They're hilarious. So very earned. And I always appreciate the actors who take it in stride and are like, I'm going to have fun with this. Halle Berry. God bless you, Halle Berry. Sandra Bullock. Sandra Bullock was great. Halle Berry was better because Halle Berry did the exact Oscar speech. Yes. In the best comedic way. She made fun of herself in two very distinct ways. It was amazing. <laughs> but this is this is an unearned one. This is this is mean. This is mean. Don't do that to a kid. Some of it's that, but it, it really is like, hey, she's the good thing about this weird ass movie. <laughs> She makes this film work. Yeah. Even in the parts that don't work, she's making it work. So don't do that to her. You can shit on everybody else in this movie, except for her. All right, let's get to trivia. Trivia. Eileen Quinn rubbed an apple on her face to make Sandy the dog kiss Annie. (laughs) Two dogs actually played Sandy. Bingo did most of the dramatic scenes, and the other did stunt work, such as jumping into the pool. That makes sense. That's fair. I mean, a stunt dog and an acting dog. Yes. This makes sense to me. <laughs> production designer Dale Hennessy died in the middle of production. Gene Callahan agreed to finish the movie, but refused to have his name listed in the credits, giving the credit to the late Hennessy. Whoa. Yeah. Considering how big a thing that is for this movie. Yeah. That's wild. That's, yeah. And this film is huge. Like, to lose your main designer of all of the fucking set pieces for this movie, that would be a lot. Actually, the Warbucks Mansion was built in 1929 by Hubert Parson, president of F.W. Woolworth, and he called it Shadow Lawn. It is now... Woodrow Wilson Hall, part of Monmouth University in West Long Branch, New Jersey. Huh. The address of the Warbucks Mansion is 987 Fifth Avenue, which does not exist. If it did exist, it would put it at the corner of 80th Street and Fifth Avenue. The Metropolitan Museum of Art is across the street at 1000 Fifth Avenue. <laughs> 587 was a Leeds Mansion torn down in 1968. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. It's worth the joke, though. Oh, absolutely. We're at 10. Oh. Absolutely. <laughs> the lines, God damn it, and come back here, you goddamn kid, were included specifically to get a PG rating. The studio believed that only parents with small children would see a G-rated live-action movie. Yeah. It's, it's not a bad plan as much as certain lines are removed in order to get a slightly to get a PG. It also totally makes sense that they would go like, no, we want this to be slightly more grown up. So older people will see it. It's for everyone. Yep. Miss Hannigan says, wrap it up. I'm listening to Helen Trent. She is referring to the romance of Helen Trent, a radio soap opera about a middle-aged woman that ran from 1933 to 1960. <laughs> Supervising editor Margaret Booth was also the original editor of Camille. Whoa. While this film takes place in 1933, the movie Camille did not come out until 1936. Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> when you don't when you don't try, when you make it that big a part of your movie, mm-hmm. that's that's wild. 
Like, if you're just going to show a random scene, then you're like, well, all right, I'll forgive him that. But when it's like a good 10 minutes of your movie is them watching this movie, Mm -hmm. it's like, maybe your continuity should have worked better. The scene featuring maybe was the last one to be shot. It replaced the original opening sequence, which was too long. That sequence originally had Sandy the dog running around the city while the stage song We'd Like to Thank You Herbert Hoover played over the radio. That's too much. Yeah. For a movie that's already too much. Sure. Daddy Warbuck says, wait, there's something interesting about that woman's smile. I might learn to like her. Hang her in my bathroom. In reference to the Mona Lisa. It's a reference to the real history of the painting. After Leonardo da Vinci died, ownership passed to King Francis I of France, who had it hung in his bathing room. So many in references here. That is a that is a very inside art reference. Like, super deep. Super deep, but I'm not mad about it. I do like that it points to the absurdity. It's like this man is so rich, he would put a priceless painting like the Mona Lisa in his bathroom. Because he doesn't get it. Well, he doesn't appreciate it. Nope. That's the surface joke. <laughs> when Annie had to climb a ladder on the bridge, the producers poured water over a gaping hole nearby to make it look good on camera. Eileen Quinn was afraid of falling into the hole. Carol Burnett refused to film the scene until the producers covered the hole to keep Eileen safe. The producers covered the hole and the scene was filmed. Thank God. Good on you, Carol. <sighs> Protect these children. The rights to the 1993 stage sequel, Annie Warbucks, were purchased by Sony Pictures. The play finds a child worker, a worker informing Daddy Warbucks that he has 60 days to marry or he'll have to return Annie to the orphanage. Naturally, Grace Farrell is the most eligible bride. More than a decade had passed since the movie, and the play was not the smash hit the original had been and has since been largely forgotten. So the project was eventually abandoned. Man, yep. really? Sequel musicals don't work. Don't do it. Not only do they not work, but really, you had to go Santa Claus 2 on it. Mm-hmm. He's got to find a woman. I mean, but at least they did that in a funny way. It's the <laughs> Santa Claus. Nice try. A more elaborate sequence for the song Easy Street was planned and shot involving Miss Hannigan and Rooster's fantasies of a privileged life. Lights, camera, Annie, kind of like a making of behind the scenes documentary, revealed that the first verse was recorded and presumably filmed, but cut from the final version to keep the running time down. The documentary also revealed a new verse to the final reprise of Maybe that is in no other version, but was ultimately cut. They didn't have their story set when they went in. Ray Stark shortened Tomorrow and combined it with Tomorrow Reprise because he felt the number was corny. This infuriated Martin Charnin, creator of the original Broadway's musical, and it's part of why he hates this movie. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's the cornerstone of this musical. You don't fuck with it. No. <sighs> Speaking of Martin Charnin... He thought Annie was too cute. Miss Hannigan shouldn't have been played as a drunk. And Warbuck shouldn't have been played by an Englishman. So he, yeah, that's part of why he hated this. He also hated the 1999 version. And he didn't like the 2012 Broadway production either. Okay. I'm not going to give him too much credence here anymore. Because, sure. uh, hey, dude, vibe. <laughs> okay. You, you got paid to sell your thing to someone else to do something with just, it. Just, it's time to be quiet now. Mm-hmm. Carol Burnett and animal supervisor Ralph Helfer are childhood friends. Aw, cute. The studio overestimated the film's merchantability and licensed characters to appear on plastic and porcelain dolls and clothing and play sets and vehicles, jewelry, plastic figurines, toy telephones, an inflatable bed, a card game, a magic slate, a button maker, tins, sticker albums, coloring books, comic books, storybooks, poster books, souvenir programs, tote bags, Halloween costumes, notepads, stationery, postcards, posters, drinking glasses, mugs, plastic cups, collector's plates, super straws, Viewmaster reels, novelty license plates, a telephone holder, puzzles, radios and microphones, record players, a gumball bank, rubber stamps, growth charts, embroidery kits, a line of Sears clothing, and much more. Due to the market oversaturation, it's not rare to find the tie-in merchandise still sealed in the original packaging. Oh, dear God. Knickerbocker's doll line included Annie, Warbucks, Punjab, Miss Hannigan, Molly, six Annie outfits, a mansion playset, and the Doonesburg limousine. 
The company also released 12 miniature character figurines, ragdolls, and other assorted merchandise. This movie is not merchable. <laughs> you can get a doll and a dog. That's it. No kid is going to watch this movie. <gasps> Why has an American girl done this? Pleasant company, you owe me. <laughs> no kid is going to watch this movie, this specific mm -hmm. movie, and go in being like, I want to play all of that. What? I'm going to play Daddy Warbugs driving in his Dunesburg across, mm -hmm. the, across the sands to get Annie off the bridge while she's in mortal peril? Mm -hmm. This is not fucking Star Wars. Nope. What are y'all doing? Acclaimed character actor Burgess Meredith lent his distinctive voice to the original American ad campaign, narrating the trailers, TV, and radio spots. You're going to eat bricks and crap lightning, kid. Watch this movie. Yeah, pretty much. God bless you, Mickey. Mm -hmm. Theone V. Aldridge, the costume designer on this film, was also the costume designer on the original stage production. Okay. And the placement of the replica of the Winged Victory sculpture at the top of the large staircase in the Warbucks Mansion is the same as it is in the Louvre in Paris, which houses the original. <laughs> uh. <laughs> that is how rich, that is how much bucks Daddy Warbucks has. That was ridiculous. <laughs> it is. So now we've come to ratings every time we do a film. We come with a very specific rating system. What is it going to be this week, David? Lockets. Yep, lockets. Is it going to be the broken locket or the new one? Mm, I'm going to say new one because it does have a happy ending. That's very true. So this is my movie. Mm -hmm. So uh, which we ha I haven't done one of these in a while. So I get to go first. I'm going to give it three lockets. Okay. Because the story is all over the place. It needs a lot of fine tuning and fixing. And we need a director to really direct it. Like it looks great. But that's because the people on this film are competent people. Um, <laughs> the cast is phenomenal. Eileen Quinn, one and done, did great. Like, cool, you're good. Everybody in this film, I want to see more of. So, yeah, so it's a three. It's a three. It's really a nostalgia watch. I don't need to see the stage musical. I'm good. I'm good. Three lockets. Three lockets. Three lockets. Different reasons. I like the story. I think the story is really solid, actually, and, and works together. I think the directing is all over the place. The competency of the people around it and the energy that everybody was bringing into it, clearly everybody was working well together, and there was a huge amount of chemistry with the actors. So despite all of the wonkiness, it pulls off into a movie that is really enjoyable despite it being ridiculous mm -hmm. and that's a hard line to run when you have a messy movie yeah i wish we had a director who you know was engaged i wish we had a john houston engaged because holy shit what an even weirder movie this would have been sure in a good way i wouldn't call it a nostalgia watch i just don't you don't have to raise your expectations super high with this movie just if you want to sit down and watch this movie again just go in with the notion that it was like, this movie's going to like throw you haymakers, but if you roll with it, you're going to enjoy it. Just don't try to dive in too deep about why they decided to make any of those decisions. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, not the best, but pretty solid. Good time had by all. Good time had by all. So what's next? Next is a journey into the surreal world of suburban America. Oh, my favorite. With a somewhat dramatic, still somewhat comedic turn from a man we don't talk about here a lot, Robin Williams. Mm, that's because we've seen almost all his films. Mm, but we haven't seen this one. It's The World According to Garp. John Lithgow, yes. Glenn Close, the, mm -hmm. the, the cast is packed here. And I have always heard very interesting things about this movie. I've heard interesting things about the book as well. John Irving mm -hmm. wrote this book, one of our real postmodern-y American life type writers. This one's going to be interesting. I feel like this is going to be like the softer side of David Lynch in some ways. Mm -hmm. That sort of everything in America is weird. And we're going to kind of celebrate that a little bit through the eyes of this man. All right. It could be total garbage. I don't know. Well, we'll have to find out. So until next time. 
have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. (laughs) 